Well, good to see you guys. Uh, so yeah, as, as Emma said, I'm Eric. I'm an intern for RUF. Uh, I'm not normally the person who does this. That's Andrew, but he gets a much needed uh, week off this week and I'm going to be taking over. So um, yeah, and if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. Um, so please reach out. Uh, you know, I hope you can find someone that has my number. Um, and if not, you can just email eric.westhog at ruf.org. And I would love to get coffee or, you know, do a phone call or FaceTime. Um, yeah, I'd love to get to know you. So if you've been with us the last several weeks, then you know that we're going through a sermon series called Why Church? So the point of this series is to ask the question, why should Christians care about the church? Why is it important to be involved in the church? And so the first two answers that Andrew has given has been because of Jesus. And then last week was because of truth. And then this week we're going to do because of compassion. So tonight we're going to explore this topic of compassion. And, you know, the, the point I'm I'm going to try to make is that only in the church do we see perfect compassion and perfect justice. And by that, I don't mean that the church perfectly exemplifies that. I mean that we worship a God who perfectly exemplifies that, a God who is perfect compassion and perfect justice. And if you're already wondering, how could that be, that God could be compassionate and just, that is the tension that we're going to explore tonight. So we are going to look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. And Emma, I think, just sent that out. You can also turn, if you have a Bible, uh, you could turn to Exodus 34. It's the second book in the Bible right after Genesis. Okay, so I'm going to read uh, Exodus 34, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you revealed your glory to Moses. Lord, you proclaimed your name. 
Lord, you revealed your character. Lord, um, we see here that you are merciful, Lord, and we thank you so much. Lord, we thank you that we can actually approach you. Lord, we can come into your throne room, Lord, because you are merciful to us. Lord, help us to understand how it is that you are merciful and just. Lord, give us understanding. Draw us to yourself, Lord. I pray your name would be hallowed, your kingdom would come, and your will would be done. Tonight, Lord, um, amongst us, Lord, be at work in this time by your spirit and draw, draw us to yourself, O Lord. We pray through Christ, our mediator and Lord. Amen. Okay, so I don't know if you've read this passage, but my guess is it sounds somewhat familiar. The phrasing of the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's because it's one of the most quoted passage, passages throughout the Bible. Other scripture writers quote it a great deal because this is an extremely important passage. Uh, you could argue that this is the most important passage of the Old Testament, if not the most important passage of the whole Bible, because it actually reveals in very plain language, God's character. So this is what we're gonna be focusing on is God's character. And then once we get an understanding of God's character, what he says in this text, we're gonna turn and reflect on the effect that should have on us as the church. Um, and we're gonna see that because God is compassionate, we are called to be compassionate. So first we're gonna look at God's character. So that'll be our first point and that will be much longer than the second point. So uh, bear with me, um, but I, I think you'll see why it does need to be longer. And then the second point will be our response. So first God's character, second, our response. So first we're gonna look at God's character and I wanna start by asking a question. How do you resolve the tension between God's mercy and justice. How do you resolve that tension? Another way to say that would be, how do you make sense of the fact that in the Bible, God is presented to us as both merciful and forgiving. It says that he delights in steadfast love and faithfulness. And yet also the Bible says that God does not tolerate any sin. Can't tolerate it in his presence, even for a moment. How can that be? How do you resolve that tension? I think there's two ways that we tend to resolve that tension. So I think the first way is we choose to focus on one and ignore the other. So I think a, a way that a lot of us want to do this is we want to focus on God's mercy. And so we say God is a merciful God, but he's not a just God. And so this looks like focusing on passages and quoting them a lot, passages like the woman caught in adultery in John chapter eight, where Jesus says to the woman, um, what he says to the people there, he says, you who are without sin should be the first to throw the first stone. And so you quote that a lot and you say, you know, look at that. Jesus is very merciful. He's very forgiving and God, you know, his mercy triumphs over judgment. And he, you know, he just, uh, he's not just. And then on the flip side, you tend to ignore passages like Luke 13. Luke 13, that's a passage that almost never gets quoted. Jesus says to the disciples, if you don't repent, you will perish. So you ignore passages like that. Or on the flip side, maybe you want to focus only on God's justice and not on his mercy. And so when you do that, you tend to compare yourself to others. And so you kind of work with God on a merit system. And you say, you know, because God is just, he's going to accept me because I'm a good person. 
or at least I'm better than other people. And so this Jesus exposes this kind of thinking in Matthew 21 to 16, which is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, where Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like people, they're getting saved and they're, God's putting them to work in his vineyard. And some work all day and some work only for an hour, but they all get paid the same wage. And the people who worked all day, they get outraged. But Jesus makes it clear that if you're getting outraged, you're not really understanding what it means to come into his kingdom because it's only his grace that brings us in. So that's the first way we can try to resolve the tension is focus on one and ignore the other. But then another option includes uh, viewing a contrast between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. So we say the God of the Old Testament, he's, uh, he's sort of harsh and judgmental and he's not very nice. And the God of the New Testament is very nice. Uh, he's revealed in Jesus and Jesus only says very nice things. And therefore that's how we resolve it. God used to be angry and now he's happy. But I hope we'll see by the end of tonight that that actually doesn't work because the God of the Old Testament is presented the same as the God of the New Testament, full of mercy and compassion and yet also just. And so we, we still re return to the same question though, which is how can this be? And this is the question that our text answers for us. And I think this also, it reveals to us how the church can be this way. How can the church be compassionate and just? So before we jump into the text, I wanted to give a little bit of context for, for where we are in Exodus, uh, just super brief flyover of Exodus. So up to this point, the Israelites, they're enslaved under the oppressive Pharaoh in Egypt. And God hears their cries for deliverance. He delivers them, takes them through the Red Sea, parts the waters, and he brings them into the wilderness. And there he says, because of the great mercy and love I've shown you, you should respond by obeying my law. This is your, your means of worshiping me, responding to me. So he gives them the 10 commandments and then he gives, that's in Exodus 20. And then in the chapters following that, he gives sort of an outworking of those 10 commandments. He gives a bunch of case laws. You know, this is what these 10 commandments looked, looks like lived out in various contexts. Then he gives the instructions for building the tabernacle, which is quite lengthy. And then before Moses can actually come down, the Israelites have received the law and he's about to come down from the mountain. He's still receiving the directions for building the tabernacle. And in Exodus 32, the people break the first two commandments. They have Aaron, the priest, make for them a golden calf and they bow down to it and worship it. So they break the first two commandments. And God responds by killing 3000 of the Israelites. So that, and then once he does that, Moses asks for God to relent and he intercedes for the people. And in asking him to relent, he asks God to reveal him his glory. So that brings us up to our passage. And as you can see up to this point in Exodus, we've already seen this contrast between mercy and justice. We see God's mercy in saving the Israelites, even though they did nothing to earn it. Um, he brought them out of Egypt, saved them, gave them his law, which it actually says in other parts of the Bible, the giving of the law was God's covenant with them. It was him pledging himself to them and saying, you are my people. And this is how you know 
that you're my people because I'm giving you a way to respond and know me. But then we see that they sin against God and he responds by killing 3,000 of them. And then in the passage right before ours in Exodus 33, we see this contrast and it's really highlighted. We see in verse five of chapter 33, um, God says to Moses, you are a stiff necked people. If for a single moment I should go among you, I would consume you. So he says that, but then a few verses later in Exodus 33, 11, it says that the Lord would speak to Moses as a friend speaks to a friend face to face. And even in speaking with Moses, people can't, no one can be on the mountain with him. We see that in our passage that, you know, no people could be on the mountain. No animals could be on the mountain because he would wipe them out. So God says, you know, I can't go in the midst of you yet. He chooses Moses and he chooses to present himself to Moses. Uh, and Moses did nothing to earn this. Moses, uh, if you read earlier in Exodus, he's not a very good guy. Uh, so this is just sheer mercy. So we see this real, this tension really highlighted up to this point. So notice when God reveals his character to Moses, what he says. So look with me at verse five. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the Lord reveals his character to Moses through his name. His name is the Lord, all, you know, it's in all caps in our translations, but it just, it's Yahweh, it's four Hebrew consonants, and that's, it's God's covenant name. That's the name that he gives, and he, said, he tells Israel that they should call him Yahweh. So that's his covenant name. And so that's what he's revealing here is, this is, this is what he's like toward Israel. He's first and foremost, compassionate and gracious. So just, I just want to think about this for a second, how amazing it is that God says the most glorious, amazing thing about who I am is that I am compassionate and gracious. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Some translations have merciful, some have compassionate, but it's the same idea. And that the key thing here is that this is the hope for Israel, and it's the hope for all Christians. The only reason we can have a relationship with God is because of his mercy and grace. You know, we see this all the way back in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve sin, and God says, if you sin, you will surely die. And so they're expecting swift judgment. They're expecting to die. But instead, God says one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible, Genesis 3.15, he tells Satan that he's going to put enmity between his offspring and the offspring of the woman. And the offspring of the woman is going to crush Satan. So this is just staggering. And it's, it's only God's mercy. They did nothing to earn that. All they did was resist God. And yet here he comes to them and gives them this promise. And then we see this in the New Testament, where whenever our redemption is talked about, us being saved, brought to Jesus, um, the, the main cause, the root of it is the mercy of God the Father. So listen to these two texts real quick. First Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then similarly, Titus 3, 4 to 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, 
he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this is our hope. Our hope lies in the fact that God the Father is merciful and gracious. He says, this is the most important thing about who I am. This is the thing I delight in most. This is the most central part of who God is. And then notice that he adds a lot of things to this. He doesn't just say merciful and gracious. Right after this, he says, I'm slow to anger. And this is an amazing phrase. Essentially, um, I, I don't know Hebrew, but essentially what it's, it's like a metaphor and it means like long fuse. So God is saying, you know, I just take a really, really long time to get angry. And, a sp- and you know, in the, t- in the context of his relation with Israel, that looks like God just waiting and waiting and waiting to inflict judgment because he wants them to repent and come to him. And I want us to think about this for a second, because the amazing thing is that God is so slow to anger and he's so merciful and gracious that I think it even offends us if we think about just how slow to anger he is, because he is slow to anger toward people that we would never be slow to anger toward. So real quick, I want to, um, I want to share a story, um, that kind of lights this. So I want you to think about, you know, maybe sins that, that you would expect God to forgive. So, you know, maybe like someone who is disobedient to their parents or someone who like steal something, but you know, maybe they had a reason to steal it. Those are things that maybe we would expect God to say, I forgive those sins. But can you think of sins that maybe it would offend you if God forgave? So John Piper, a pastor, he shares a story of doing evangelism um, with some guys in the streets of Minneapolis. He just meets these guys and he starts sharing with them the story of Jesus. He starts talking to them about God's forgiveness And the guys start kind of putting two and two together and realizing that there is really no bounds to the mercy and forgiveness that Piper is talking about. And so they ask him, would God forgive even a child molester? It's a staggering question. Piper says, yes, he would forgive even a child molester. And the guys say, I can't stand for that. And they walk away. And I want to be really clear here. The reason this story is so staggering is because that is such a heinous sin. That's a sin that God takes even more seriously than we do. Uh, It's a sin that he would never, ever overlook. And yet he says that he he would delight to forgive somebody who did that if they repented. And so what is it for you? What is the thing that you just really can't stand for God for God forgiving? Is it a child molester? Is it a murderer? Is it a racist? I mean, think about it. Does it bother you to think that right this moment, God could be delighting to forgive someone who has been a lifelong racist and is now repenting to God of their sin? Our text is saying that God really does delight in that forgiveness. And I think the reason I bring that up is because I think it's a good litmus test for us because we see in other places in scripture that if we are disgusted by that kind of forgiveness, or we feel like that's, that's not right for God to forgive people like that, 
it's a sign that we don't really understand grace. James 2.13 says, judgment is without mercy for those who show no mercy. Similarly, Jesus says, if you don't forgive others their sin, neither will your sin be forgiven. And surely the reason for this is because we're showing that we, if, if we can't stand for God forgiving someone like that, we're showing that we are still operating with God on a merit system. We're operating with God as if we did something to get right with him. You know, why is he acting like this toward them, you know? And the reason we think that is because, well, I, I did something to get God to forgive me. But we're supposed to, you know, if, if we really get God's mercy, then we understand I did nothing. I should delight in anybody and everybody for repenting of their sin and finding forgiveness. So I want you to notice here that um, there's something amazing in all of these attributes of God, and that's the necessity of human sin. So think for a second about some of these attributes. It says he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's steadfast in love. And it says that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so inherent in all of those things is that there's sin, sin needs to be there. You know, you can only be steadfast in love and faithful if there's something that's that you're having to overcome to show that. Obviously, you can't forgive sin if there's no sin. So this actually leads to a really profound conclusion, which is that um, God can only display the most glorious thing about him if we are sinful. So this does actually help us in some way answer the really hard question of why did God allow sin? We can say that part of it surely is what Ephesians 1, 6 says, which is that all of God's purposes can be summed up in this phrase. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace. All of God's purposes were leading to him being able to magnify his grace, because this is the most amazing thing about who he is. And in order for us to really enjoy this and receive this and rejoice in this, we really do have to see ourselves as absolutely undeserving, as undeserving as child molesters, racists. I know that's uncomfortable. I mean, it's uncomfortable for me to say, but we really bring nothing to the table. And the only way we can really rejoice in these character qualities is if we see ourselves as needing this, we need this kind of mercy. So at this point, though, you're likely wondering why, if this is the most important thing about who God is, and this is so central to him, why does he add the second half of verse seven? You know, why does he add there, but who will by no means clear the guilty? You know, it seems like it just doesn't fit. And it also just seems like a, like a contradiction. Um, you know, I mean, ha obviously God cannot forgive someone and not forgive them. So these two things, there, there really is a tension here. And so I think to answer this, to answer the question of how can God be both merciful and just, I think there's a, a two-part answer. There's potentially more parts, but I think there's two parts can really help us understand this. So the first part of the answer of how can God be both merciful and just, how do we make sense of the end of verse seven? 
is that it's, it's super important to note that there's no tension within God. Okay. So I think when we read something like this, we think of it like God being a person. We think of it like if, if someone said, you know, I, Eric, am merciful and I'm just. And you immediately think, okay, well, that means Eric is sometimes merciful and he's sometimes just. Because I'm not perfectly those things. You know I wouldn't perfectly be those things. And so there'd be times when I'm all mercy and no justice. And there'd be times when in my justice, I lack mercy. But it is not that way with God. There's no tension within God. He's fully these things all the time. Okay? So, you know, this is really important for us to understand. Because I think we tend to think that if God is loving, then he's loving in a way that lacks justice. Or if he's just, then he's just in a way that lacks love. And so this leads us to say things like, how can a loving God send people to hell? Because we, we feel like if he's going to be just in that situation, then surely he's not loving anymore. But there is no tension within God. He, and all, all the time when he's being loving, he's also being just. When he's being just, he's also being loving. So an 18th century American pastor, he said, he said it this way. If all God's attributes are not manifested, the glory of none of them is manifested as it is. For the divine attributes reflect glory on one another. And then he, he says specifically of God's mercy and justice, the glory of, of God's mercy does not appear as it is, unless it is manifested as a just mercy or as a mercy consistent with justice. Does that make sense? So he's saying, if God doesn't present to us his mercy as a just mercy, then we're not really understanding what God's mercy is because all of God's attributes are consistent with one another. So if we talk about one and we leave out another, we're not really understanding what that attribute is. I think this is important because we're all prone to want to divorce God's mercy and justice. We want to focus on the one and ignore the other. So to give an analogy, um, Sinclair Ferguson, he's a pastor and he shares, he lives in Scotland and he shares this story of these white sandy beaches in Scotland. And he talks about how these beaches, they overlook these bays and people will go to them and they're just, really beautiful and people will walk up on these beaches and they don't realize that at the end of the beach, it doesn't lead to the water. It actually is a cliff. And so people will actually sometimes fall and get really injured or even die because they don't realize that these beaches are cliffs. And I think the reason what, what he was getting at is they don't associate danger with such beauty. When they're enjoying these beautiful beaches, they're not thinking, I'm in imminent danger right now. And I think one way to understand why it is that God puts the end of verse 7 here is because God wants us to not divorce them. He wants us to know that even in God's mercy, he is also just. And so Ferguson says that uh, it's the responsibility of Scottish citizens when they're at these beaches to see when they see people, you know, tourists getting close to the edge, they have to yell to them, danger, danger, danger. 
because they don't realize that it's a cliff. And in the same way, God in verse seven, he's saying to us, danger, danger, danger. Okay. Because you're, we're tempted to say God is only merciful and he's not just, and he's saying, that's not true. You know, danger, danger. Don't think that way. Okay. He's merciful and he's just, and he's just, and he's merciful. So one last quote from the pastor I quoted earlier, he says, the glory of one attribute cannot be manifested as it is without the manifestation of another. One, one attribute is defective without another, and therefore the manifestation will be defective. So we need both of these attributes. Um, but as you can tell, that doesn't fully resolve the tension because we're still thinking, okay, well then what does that mean for me? Because I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we care about is what does that mean for me? Do I get mercy or do I get justice? And the answer to that question is, do you trust God's mediator? Okay, for the Israelites, the way they resolved this tension was the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus comes right after the book of Exodus, and it gives all these details about sacrifices. You know, they have these animal sacrifices, and they have a priest that will do these sacrifices for them to intercede for them with God. And these sacrifices are meant to picture for them that God, in his mercy, is still just. He demands atonement to be made. But the crazy thing is, these were actually only meant to be a picture. And that's clear. All through the Old Testament, you see phrases like, you know, we know that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So the Israelites sensed this. These weren't sufficient sacrifices. They knew that it doesn't actually clear all of my guilt because I killed a bull. Rather, it was meant to point to the coming Messiah, the one who would actually be the mediator between God and man. And so listen to these words from Romans chapter three. This is speaking of Jesus. Paul says that God has provided a means of our acceptance with him that is apart from perfect obedience. We've all fallen short of perfect obedience and God has given Jesus Christ to bear the weight of our sin. He says this, Romans 3.25, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So God put Jesus forward to propitiate God's wrath, to turn away his wrath towards sin. So, and then he, he goes on to say this, he says, this was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in doing this and putting Jesus forward, making it so that we can be right with God through faith in Christ, God is just because he, he is not letting any sin go unpunished. All of it was punished in the death of Jesus Christ, who was God and man. So in the death of Jesus, God was just, and he's the justifier. He gets to now joyfully say, as he delights to say, this person is right with me. They are accepted because Jesus took their penalty. So this is, this is how the tension is resolved. Either we pay for our own sins uh, in hell, or we trust in Jesus Christ, who took the penalty for our sins by offering himself up on the cross. And if we do that, our judgment 
at all the judgment we deserve for every one of our sins, past, present, and future, it happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. There's no more judgment for us. So that was point one. I know that was, that was very long. Point two will be so short. This is our response. Um, so the reason I spent so long on that is because I think it's really important for us to understand God's character if we're going to understand how we should respond. Uh, so three ways we should respond. Very brief. Uh, we are to believe, we are to linger, and we are to imitate. Okay, so first believe. Look at what Moses did here. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. And then he pleads God's promises back to God. He asks, God, be this way toward us. You've said you're merciful. Go in our midst and be merciful toward us for we are a stiff-necked people. So the first application is believe in Jesus. Believe what I just said, what Paul said in Romans 3, that Jesus really did take the punishment for anyone who trusts in him. If you haven't done this, this is the call right now, is to believe in Jesus Christ. So that's point one. And then number two, once you believe, linger. And what I mean by that is Moses, we see later in Exodus 34, he stayed on the mountain. And the longer he stayed on the mountain, his face actually started to glow because he was with God. He was talking to God face to face like a man talks with a friend and God's glory wore off on him. And it says when he came down from the mountain, his face was glowing. He didn't even realize it. And the people put a veil over his face. And so in the same way, the more that we be behold God, the more time we spend with God in his word, in prayer, through things like worship on Sundays, the more time that we spend with God, he actually starts to wear off on us. We start to have glowing faces like Moses. We start to reflect the glory of a compassionate and just God. Listen to this. This is the connection Paul makes with this passage to us believers now. He says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So we are to behold God, behold him as merciful and just. Look at Jesus and the gospels. The more that we acquaint ourselves with what God in human flesh was like, the way that he was so merciful and compassionate, that starts to really wear off on us. And we start to actually reflect that glory. And then number three, we're to imitate God. So the defining mark of Jesus in the gospels was compassion. Over and over, when Jesus saw people, it says that he had compassion on them. Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So this should be the defining mark of Christians. We should be compassionate people. This should be our first response when we see people. And this includes people that we don't want to be compassionate toward by nature. People like friends who are self-absorbed and rude. Uh, even people like politicians who we disagree with. People like school administrators who make decisions we disagree with. This even includes people who directly hate and wrong you. 
our first response to all of these people should be compassion. So real quick, as we finish, I just wanted to give one quick illustration of what this should look like. Um, and I'm gonna do it through a story where I didn't show this. Uh, so Lauren and I, the other day, we were, we had gone to Chipotle to pick up dinner. Um, I actually think I saw Ben Pate there that night. Um, yep, there's Ben. So anyway, uh, we're, we're driving home and we're talking about her Bible class. So Lauren's a middle school teacher and she teaches a Bible class and we're, you know, she's, she's sort of asking the question, why is it that a lot of the students, not a lot of the students, but some of the students just have no interest. They have no interest in spiritual things. They just couldn't care less about the Bible. And I started sort of venting and I was like, well, you know, they're just not born again. They just, you know, they don't even realize the immense privilege it is to have Bible as a subject in school. They just don't even care. They don't want anything to do with God. And I'm getting all frustrated and sort of prideful. Like, why aren't they more like me? I love the Bible. And, you know, we get home and I pray before our meal. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that that is just so not the way Jesus would respond to those students. Jesus would respond to those students with compassion. He would say, I have compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know the shepherd yet. They don't, you know, they're looking to other things for hope. They're not really trusting in the shepherd. They, they're empty on the inside. They are. And that should elicit compassion from me. And this should be our defining quality, should be compassion. Our deepest longing should be that people would come to know the great shepherd that we have come to know. And this should be the church's primary mission. And I want to even argue that this should be the number one thing you're looking for in a church. Are they compassionate? Do they long for people to, to know Jesus Christ? This should be the church's defining mark. So let's pray that God would do that in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you are compassionate and merciful toward us. Lord, we pray that you would go in the midst of us, O oh Lord. Uh, show yourself to be merciful and compassionate. O oh Lord, draw us to Christ. Help us to believe, O oh Lord. Whether we have already believed or for the first time, O oh Lord, I pray we would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that you put him forth to bear our penalty for our sin, Lord. And our judgment is past if we believe in him. Oh, we thank you so much, Lord. You are so good to us, Lord. Please help us to um, treasure you, Lord, to dwell with you, to walk with you, and to reflect your glory. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.